Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Every week. <laughs> Good morning, one and all. Welcome to the Two Tongues Podcast. Today, Kyle and I are bringing a guest to the table, our buddy, Daniel Torreton. What's going on, Daniel? Hi, guys. Nice to be back. I'm well, thank you. Good. It's really. I was just uh, saying before we started recording, it's nice to be able to see Daniel, but he cannot see me. Uh, I, have to, <laughs> I have to remedy the webcam situation, but here's the thing. There's a whole lot about the audio stuff I don't know, and I'm afraid if I plug in a webcam, it's going to have its own speaker, and this computer's going to ask me which speaker to use, and it's going to, and I'm going to make mistakes. Yeah. So that's why I'm reluctant to uh, to do it. Yeah, I understand. Tech stuff yeah, is getting of a, beyond us. Bit of a minefield once you start mixing sound and audio, uh, sound and video. You yeah. seem to be doing great over there, though. You look the, the webcam looks great. It you does. sound great. <laughs> I could Thank see, you. Yeah, you're welcome, man. <laughs> I can see your uh, your um, sh- chakras on on the wall back there. Is that what those are? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got my seven seven chakras chakras hanging on the wall, and I've got my crystals over in the corner. <laughs> oh, you know what, Daniel? I forgot to ask. When we first met, you mentioned you got a shakti board. Uh, Say that again, my friend. When, when we first met, you mentioned you bought one of those shakti boards. I have. Yeah, you might be able to see it actually in the oh, distance. Oh, is it rolled uh, up back there? Uh, it's a rolled up. Um, it's like it's like a bed of nails, but it like Medieval. it rolls out, and you lay on it. And initially, it's really uncomfortable. It literally feels like you're being uh, being stabbed with knives in your back. Mm. But uh, the longer you lay on it, the less the pain is, and then this amazing sense of warmth runs mm. all over your body. It's amazing. Would, would, would that be blood? Yeah, I think what it does is the uh, the little nails, they're like little plastic barbs that stick in your mm. back. I think what they do is they prompt blood flow to the uh, surface of the skin. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I just mm. wondered. I wondered how often you used it. Um, Not probably as often as I should do, but sometimes what I do is if I'm feeling a bit tense before I go to sleep at night, I'll lay on it for an hour. Whoa. Or so. And then I, I sleep like a baby. I tell you, it makes you really fall asleep sleep well. Really? Oh, yeah. When you said when I'm feeling a bit, I thought you were going to say when I'm feeling a bit naughty, like you're going to punish yourself or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little, uh, what's the word? Self-flagellation? Yes, I don't there know. you go. I don't know. That's, that's good enough. That's, that's it, what I was yeah. thinking of. All right. Well, for those people who've listened to the podcast, you're familiar with Daniel. Uh, he's been on a few times before. Um, he's been kind enough to have me on uh, the Onion Unlimited podcast, and uh, we did a few live streams together. 
And what we were talking about this time around, uh, it, it sounded a lot like maybe another one of the live streams that we had done because Daniel and I share some interest in um, in religion and uh uh, history, and we were getting into some pretty interesting stuff, um, some philosophical stuff, some historical stuff. Uh, we got into the Bible. That was a lot of fun. And then um, when we were doing that, I, I like to, I like whenever I, this topic comes up, I like to talk about how many similarities there are between Jewish uh, religion and pre-Jewish cultures. Mm-hmm. And Daniel was getting into a bunch of that when he was talking about. Um, Talking about the name of God in the Old Testament, uh, Yahweh, and um, and uh, uh, the different—I um, I don't know—I don't know if you'd call them schools, but but there's the Yahwehs, and then there's the the, the Elohim. I don't know what the proper f- phrase is, but hmm. but originally um, traditions that called God different names, and so we were digging into what what that means. And I told him like I rattled off to a bunch of things to Daniel about. Uh, Zoroastrianism and how the ideas of heaven and hell came from Zoroastrianism that the Jewish and Christian tr- traditions adopted, and that there's these um, antediluvian kings lists the, in these cuneiform tablets that talk about um, the rulers of um, Sumer or, or Babylon. I'm not sure which one, and that the patriarch names correspond to the Jewish patriarchs. And there's all these strange similarities, and one of them that I forgot to talk about, and I kind of like wanted to bring this to the table just so that I didn't forget to talk about this uh, has to do with Hammurabi and the code, the law code of Hammurabi. So basically what I did, Daniel, was I got like three different things that I forgot to mention that first time we talked about this. And uh, mm-hmm. I want to go through them uh, and talk about them. Uh, but you and I got into a conversation with a fellow on Twitter and started getting into Hinduism. And you, and you had a lot to say more than I had to say actually on the matter. So I wanted to dig into that. Also, there's a particular branch of Hindu philosophy that you've been getting into. And I'm super, I've always been really enamored by Hinduism because of how ancient it is. And, um, um, I read the Upanishads, but that's it. So my, my, um, Jeez, man, I, get, I'm just, I keep getting all these notices popping up. Uh, anyway, um, I, I didn't have the opportunity to get into it as much as I like, so I'm all ears about that. So let, why don't we start there, man? Um, uh, t- tell us what got you into that specifically. Tell, tell us a little bit about a high level, and then we can kind of get the conversation rolling. Okay, so um, there's a particular school of Hinduism known as Advait, Advaita Vedanta, uh, or Advaitism. And it's a uh, the word Advaita. um, The word Advaita means dualism. So when you stick an A on the front of it, Advaita means non-dualism, or more precisely, non-secondness. And then Vedanta literally means the end of the Vedas, as in the end part of the Vedas. Mm. So when you look at the uh, when you look at the actual Vedas, there's four Vedas, Rig Veda and so forth. Mm-hmm. And each Veda has got subdivisions. It's got four subdivisions in each Veda. And the last section of each Veda, the fourth section, mm-hmm. The end part is the Upanishads that you're referring to there. So Advaita Vedanta, it's a non-dualistic school. 
is a score that t teaches non-secondness and it bases its beliefs on the Upanishads. Mm. So it's, it's a very, very specific niche area of Hinduism. And it's, it's one of those things, it's not particularly popular okay with other schools of hinduism <laughs> and there's some there's some good reasons for that so i i would like to know those reasons but a name comes to mind and daniel you this i don't know if this has come across your uh your eyes yet but shankara i believe um there's a one of the rishis one of the um gurus i don't know what they call them i, I don't know what language to use so i would try to be respectful but uh yeah there's a, gen, a, a guy named shankara and i maybe i'm mispronouncing it but um, I, I was I was pretty sure that that he was associated with Vedanta, Vedanta Hinduism, but I don't know which branch, and I don't know what the differences are. Uh, yeah, I I I also don't don't know that. I'm afraid. Okay. So tell me why the other branches of Hinduism would uh, would not would would isolate this particular group. Right. So the other branches of Hinduism, um, as you're probably aware, they have various deities and it it just depends on how you interpret the uh, sacred writings it's it's supposedly 33 deities which are manifestations or projections let's say of brahman the ultimate reality but there are some versions of um, hinduism that have translated the texts to actually read 33 million. Mm. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's a big jump from yes. 33 to 33 million. In terms of um, worship, that's a hell of a lot of gods, deities <laughs> to worship. Let's say deities, not gods, because they, they just believe in the one ultimate reality. But mm. these deities are like different manifestations, different projections of the same god. Now... There's a lot of worship goes on. Um, there's a lot of sacrifices that are given. There's a lot of ritual involved, for the most part, in Hinduism when it comes to these deities. Advaita Vedanta, non-dualism, basically says that you are Brahman. There is only Brahman, and you are it. Perfect. Okay. Now, once you, once you introduce that into the equation, there's two things at four, by the way. First of all... Why would you why would you worship yourself? So straight away that need to worship all those gods. This is this is why this is um, quite attractive to me actually. I like the Hindu philosophy, but I don't like the idea of worshiping many gods. Right. Yeah. So Advaita gives me that option to not worship effectively. If I do choose to worship in any way, effectively I'm just connecting with myself. I'm yeah. not worshiping a deity. I'm just, I'm just connecting with my higher self, as it were. Yeah. yeah. So that that's one reason why some of the other schools don't particularly like Advaita because we wouldn't be worshiping gods. I got you. Yeah, that that reminds me of um, when when we were talking about um, the Pharaoh Akhenaten in ancient mm -hmm. Egypt, and he he closed down all the temples and told everybody there was only one God, even though they had been worshipping dozens of gods. Um, that pissed a lot of people off. Uh, you yeah. know, it, if, if you look at the um, 
archaeological remains of Akhenaten, the the people after he was dead went back into his mortuary temple and carved his name, chipped his cartouche name off of all of his um, off of all like that's his ticket to the afterlife. And they were like, "Fuck this guy!" They went in there and chipped <laughs> his name off. They they busted his face off of all the all the statues. So I, I can understand why that would uh, why that would be. Uh, difficult for other Hindus to uh, kind of accommodate, you know, if you're undermining all the all the priests, especially 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 with a caste system, right? Because those people born into the priesthood and they're important, they don't want that taken from them, you know. Yeah, yep. they, doesn't matter the job. So all these other branches, they they believe that idea that the deities are manifestations of the one God, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, Hinduism. Um, in general, is not a polytheistic religion. People might think it is when they see all the all the, the different idols and you know, like Ganesh and you know, sure. the elephant god and all these many many armed. <laughs> I do wonder hands if... and gods and yeah, but it's it is actually a monotheistic religion. There is only the one Brahman, and ev- ev- literally everything else is a manifestation of that. The gods rocks trees you know even ourselves i do wonder if that is the case if that's what they all believe then why it's such a struggle like why they have such a problem with the per the you know that branch that you guys are talking about just being like no there's only one like i just uh, like i don't understand the the friction yeah well I i think what it is is this um definition or or demarcation between uh, non-dualism and dualism. Mm. I think with the Advaita branch of philosophy, basically the non-dualistic school is able to entertain dualism in so far as it can view it as as almost an illusion. It, it It's real in the sense that you can experience dualism, you know, your individuality and your ego and so forth. But it kind of doesn't work the other way with the other schools. Then they're, they're not so happy with that idea because you are effectively saying that you are the totality of Brahman. Yeah. So I, I want to clear up for the people who maybe don't have it, aren't steeped in Hinduism. When we're talking about the Vedas, we're talking about mm-hmm. their their holy books, and the yep. and the Upanishads. Um, Daniel mentioned it was the last. Um, you know, I mean. By definition, by the title, it's the last of the uh, the completion of the Vedas. It, it reminds me of something um, that might that might put this in perspective. When you look at the way Muslims consider the Quran, they consider it to be the final revelation, right? So they accept yeah. they accept you know Jewish scripture and Christian scripture, or at least they claim to, but they believe that the Quran is the final. Uh, revelation, and so there aren't there aren't going to be any others, and it's the capstone. It trumps all the others, right? And as a Christian, I, I might say, well, Muhammad was born what is like four hundred years or five hundred years or six hundred years after Jesus. I don't quite remember, um, but a long time after Jesus's time. And uh, the book com- the the Quran comes and trumps my Bible. Like as a, as a Christian or Jew, I might be pretty upset about that. And yep. th- it sounds like that's what the Upanishads did to the Vedas. It's like, no, 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 no. This is this is the yeah. correct interpretation. This is this is it. And fuck it, all the, you know, all the, all the rest of them, right? Yep. And there's uh, the, there's like I mentioned, there's two two reasons as well why this might not go down so well. First of all, you've got the fact that if you 
if you absolutely are Brahman, there's no one to worship, so you can put the gods aside in that respect. The other, the other thing that is a problem is moksha. You've probably heard of moksha. Yes, yes. The idea that we are in this kind of cycle of births and deaths and rebirths and reincarnation and what have you. And for the most part, Hindus believe that you attain moksha after you die. So you, you need to die in order to get out of that, that cycle. Whereas the Advaita school, it, it actually teaches you can achieve moksha in this life. And you do that by realizing your true nature. So as soon as you realize that you are Brahman, that you are the source, and that you don't need to worship all these gods, it's almost like that kind of slavery to that, that cyclic constant striving just dissipates and you can be you can just enjoy your life so i wonder because um the buddha siddhartha Gautama, was a uh, hindu mm -hmm. right he was a he was a hindu and nirvana sounds a lot like what you just described very Re much so yeah right. advaita vedanta is very much um, in the buddha buddhist school of thinking that's interesting that is interesting mm. yeah and I like that because um, there's this this kind of sense of peace that you're not you're not enslaved to religion anymore. You're not enslaved to gods anymore. You can just be. Once you realise who you actually are, what your true nature is, you can just be. That doesn't mean that there's there's absolutely nothing to do because you've still got what's known as your dharma, which is your personal duty or we might say your purpose for being here. We've all got a purpose for being here mm. and it's our duty to fulfill that. Yeah. That's interesting. That, that's kind of it. It's, it's almost like you sort of feel like you've arrived. Mm. You've reached that destination while you're still alive. Mm. And now you can just use your life, the here and now to fulfill your duty, your, um, your purpose in life. So it's, I, it's a lovely, it's a lovely teaching, and it doesn't come with all the baggage of the religious side of things, which is nice. Yeah, it sounds like um, it sounds like you have to, you know, you have to discover your purpose. So it sounds like mm. li living is um, a, the journey of discovery of what that dharma mm. is and its fulfillment, which is a beautiful idea. Um, I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious about what Kyle might think. There's two things that uh, this idea of Dharma is interesting, but you, in the beginning, when we were introducing Hinduism, you called Brahma the ultimate reality. And I wanted to, mm. I wanted to bounce that one off Kyle. I am very attracted by the the way that the Upanishads speak and the way that uh, the Upanishads um, describe God and all that. It, it's very appealing to me. Um, so Kyle's been exploring Orthodox Christianity, which is an interesting journey, and I want to I want to hear all about it. But I'm curious, from your perspective, Kyle, what do you think about a religious tradition that calls God the ultimate reality, rather than God, but the ultimate reality? Um, I think that. I mean, I I guess I would need to know more about what specifically they mean by that, but okay. um. I mean, I think that it's just like it's down to semantics at some point. All these people are arguing about what they're going to call God, and it just seems kind of 
like a pointless argument, you know, um, that that's kind of how I feel anyways. It's like, you're all, you're all talking about the same thing, but you're just arguing about what you're going to call it. You know, Mm. I've got something for you actually, Kyle, that I wanted to bounce off of you if I can. Sure. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's what we're here for, man. So, right. So Brahman, there's, there's essentially two versions of this Brahman. There's what we call, um, let me just see if I can find the spelling, Nurguna Brahman, Nurguna Brahman. Nur means without, and Guna means attributes. Mm. So in its purest sense, Brahman is viewed as the source of all things, not only beyond space and time, but it's also formless, eternal, unchangeable, unaffected, Mm-hmm. You, you can't do anything to affect it. And unlike the traditional biblical sense of God, it doesn't have any qualities, either good or bad. It just is. And the mm. word it is probably the best way to, to dis- describe Naguna Brahman. It's not a he, it's not a she, it's genderless. It's, it's not even a person. It just, it's this kind of ocean from which everything arises. Okay. Mm. But then you've got this other, Brahman or, or another, uh, which is basically a manifestation of the one I've just spoken of. And that's what's referred to as Saguna Brahman. And it's the closest thing in Advaita Vedanta Hinduism to God. Um, it's often referred to as Ishvara, which means the Lord. Mm. And it's it's basically this idea of... You've got the underlying Naguna Brahman without attributes, but then arising from that kind of ocean, you've got this this God with attributes, a um, someone with a personality and qualities and so on. That's the closest thing to mm. the, the the biblical God. It's the best of both worlds in some ways because you've you've then got this this biblical God. But it, it's actually the God itself is actually arising from the source, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious what, what Kyle has to say on this. I mm. like, like as Daniel's describing this, I just nod my head because because it corresponds so closely to my mystic experience. What he's describing, I just nod my head like, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. I, I believe that this um what Daniel's describing when he says formless and featureless, and that's what I call non-being. That's what that's what mm-hmm. I that's what I call the matrix of being. It's that which is necessary for anything to be. It's whatever is needed. It's the seed of everything or anything. It's the stem cell of the cosmos. It's something like that. Sure, and I can go ahead. But Daniel. then, when 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 consciousness first arises from that source, that's when you've got your God. Mm. with the qualities. So what do you think about that idea compared to a a Christian idea or an Orthodox Christian idea, Kyle? Do you think that they're um, mutually exclusive? Do you think that they're... they're... Um, I don't know. I mean, my only issue with... And it's not even necessarily an issue with the like the underlying truth of that you know the what you're talking about it's 
an issue with the behavior that that leads to or allows. Okay. Um, because if everything, if everything is source and there is no characteristic, you know, um, I think that that, you know, it comes down to like good and evil. You mm. know what I mean? Uh, if there is no characteristic to, uh, you know, the source, then that seems to me to allow for like any any kind of behavior. And that's that's where I have that you know yeah. I, I start to have a problem with that sort of thing. So it's it's funny because it took me a really long time, and I still struggle with this to separate morality from uh, God, the significance of morality. Like I, I think God is an idea. There is no more significant idea. Um, there is nothing more worthy of pondering. Um, period than the idea of God. But the idea that that comes along with morality, like I've always struggled with that because I, because like Daniel described, I don't see a way around it. If God is one and a Christian believes that as much as a Hindu, well, as much as a Vedanta Hindu, um, then there is no distinction between good and evil because it all flows from God. Nothing exists without coming from God. And so even the possibility for an action that you would call evil um, exists there in the heart of the deity that is supposed to be, you know, according to Christian tradition, all good and all loving and all. No, there's something wrong about that because the world is not all good and all loving, you know. So I don't know how to make peace with that exactly. I, I, I try to, but. I don't I don't think God is all good. Once you introduce a a God in the in the biblical sense of a God, a personal God, a knowing, uh, a knowledgeable God that has consciousness and everything. It, you've got that age-old question of well, well, where did where did he come from? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, who who created God? And then. I always used to get told, well, you know, God is, God is eternal. He's always been around. But this, this idea of a personal God, it kind of presupposes a, a knowing self or something that there has to be something that underlies that knowing self. Right. God has got to come from somewhere. And that's, that's effectively what this, this kind of underlying absolute reality, reality is. It's this, You've got to have this non-personal underlying matrix, if you will, this ocean, even for God to exist, because the biblical God is very is very human-like, very human-like in the way that he's described, you know, with the qualities and the good and the evil and and so forth. Oh no. Uh- yeah, sorry, sorry, Daniel. I'm I'm getting a little Zoom message here saying that we're going to end up getting getting kicked out like we did before. So, so uh, we're going to have to um, we're going to have to probably uh, start a new session. And, uh, <laughs> no and, and but it, well, we have ten minutes, so uh, well, minutes. we'll we'll, de- yeah. we'll we'll deal with that problem when we get to it. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> and I don't and I'm not super keen on editing the podcast. So uh, so this is just going to be that's a, a new <laughs> thing, isn't it? This uh, kicking you out after. An yeah, hour? yeah, that we, didn't used to happen. We didn't used to have that problem. Yeah, no. Yeah, fucking yeah. Zoom, trying to figure out how to make that money. Yeah, asking, me to, asking me to upgrade. Uh, yeah, so I've got this. Uh, the 
the idea of a God with attributes to me, I'm just trying to put this into words. It's very difficult, but the idea of a God with attributes, a biblical God as a person, it's almost like that, that needs a container to exist within. Yes. And that, that container in which God exists is source. So it's not, it's not saying that there is no God, you know, this allows for God, but God himself needs to exist within something um, not greater than him, but less defined than him, let's say. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great point. It's an absolutely great point because we can't imagine anything existing without existing somewhere or somehow there's a there's a there's a place or a or a manner of of existence that we that we can place on God but I don't make the distinction Daniel makes between source and God so I look at I look at this as God existing within itself the place that God exists is also God I see it as I see it as that's the mystery right that's the mystery of God it's the thing that that is a paradox you know how I always bring up paradox God is that which exists within itself that's a paradox and that's well, that, that, that I suppose is effectively what non-dualism is about because you've you've got this illusion of a Brahman with attributes a God but it is only an illusion it is a projection of the Brahman without attributes so yes it is it is all the same thing mm. it just depends what angle you're looking at this from whether you're looking at it from the non-dualistic uh, point of view or whether you're looking at it from a dualistic point of view that is an illusion and that's the great thing with advaita because it gives you both both angles so Kyle how, how do you how do you take the idea that the individual personal um, well material reality the way that we experience things that you and I are an illusion of some kind mm-hmm. You know, from from the pool, the from the particular religious pool that you have. See, it's, it seems to me like Kyle my, Kyle isn't as interested in the aspects of God that I am. Right? I, what fascinates me about God is w- trying to understand what form God takes and what and <laughs> what, what is he? What is he exactly? What is it? <laughs> and what's what's my relationship to him? It, whatever you want to call it. But you seem you seem to be focused more on the. More, the moral components, like the, the existence of God places um, certain uh, rules and certain parameters around behavior and um, and like social cohesion. And is that am I am I off the mark? Uh, I mean, I'm definitely interested in those sort of things. I think that this whether this is all there is or not this is what we exist in so it's important to know how to operate in it um but i mean i i don't i'm interested in the aspects of god that you are uh i just don't really think that i'm ever going to understand you know Mm. uh Maybe when I die and I'm like a, a part of it again, you know, I'm like recycled back into the entire, you know, the whole, maybe then I'll get some, but maybe not, you know? Um, so I just, uh, I, I'm more interested in, at least currently, in how to operate in what we see as reality because this is, this is it for us mm. right now. 
It's, it's Kyle's such a practical man. Yeah, you, right. So, so listen, I, well, uh, go ahead. I, th- I think that's, that's the difference between us here, isn't it? In so far as my outlook and I think your outlook, Chris, to a degree as well, is that it's a philosophical quest for an answer. Having found that answer, it doesn't leave us in a, it, well, it certainly doesn't leave me in a position where I feel the need to do anything with regard to that God. I don't need to join a religion. I don't need to worship. It's ju- it's just unnecessary. It's it's a it's almost like an an intellectual question that I've answered yeah. for myself. And it doesn't. I was thinking about this the other day. I actually am not much different in many ways to an atheist. My my concept of source doesn't demand me to do anything religious or theistic. Whereas Kyle, I think your your concept of God, the more biblical God, the personal God, the God with qualities, the God that determines what is good and evil and so forth, that does put some obligations on you as to how you how you go about your life, doesn't it? Uh, Religiously. I guess I mean, so. Um, I I'm, not, see- I'm trying not trying to put words in your mouth. No, no, it, it I, kind I, of it kind of leads you. I think it leads you to a point where you have to be religious. Mm, I don't know. I don't know if you have to. I don't. I mean, I like. I just wonder in the position that you're in. Okay, mm. let's say that you decide I'm going to try something. I'm going to try. Uh, to do theistic things. I'm going to try to open myself up to religion and you discover something in that. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, you you discover some sort of value in that. Mm. What do, I mean, what do you, what do you do with that? Because I was in, that, I've been that, in that, the same position. Now that I wouldn't go the, the theistic route now. I, so, I have no need to. I, so, Kyle, do you, do you feel like um, Daniel and I thinking like along these lines is we're spinning our wheels or we're uh, it's like a <laughs> like an intellectual masturbation sort of a situation? Where, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, no, no, not really. I mean, I, I understand the curiosity, you know, I under I, I see the I see what is fascinating about it. You okay. know, but like I said, I have those interests, too. Um, but I just don't think, you know, it's not intellectual masturbation because masturbation comes with a climax. It comes with an end. Um, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's true. It's true. It doesn't end, does it? You know what? Daniel kept, kept saying that thinking along these lines removes the necessity of worship. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to spin this a different way. And I tell me what you think about this, because this is more along the lines, I think, of my, my own thinking. That if you believe in non-duality, if you believe God is one, every, there's, everything is a unity, then... I don't necessarily not believe that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you believe that, I think that if you recognize, and I say this all the time, that that I'm God and God is sitting across from me and I'm talking to God from uh, from uh, England over here on the, on the on the computer skyping with God every every <laughs> interaction that you have is is worship right because what is wor- mm. what is worship it's it's coming face to face with the divine and it's doing it's 
It's do, making sacrifices. It's doing. But what what is that? It's an act of kindness. It's it's a you know it's it's a experience of awe while you're staring at the moon. It's everything. I think it was uh, James in the Bible said the form of worship, or some translations say the form of religion that is pure and undefiled in the standpoint of God is to look after orphans and widows in their tribulation. I love it. I love that. The way you treat other people, particularly disadvantaged people, is a form of worship. All right. So the recording commences. You guys weren't aware of the pause, but there was a technical difficulty. But we're back. It was um, a significant pause. We were uh, we were just talking about uh, this, this non-dualism idea and... and whether that allows us to avoid the necessity of worship or what that even means. And I'm reframing it by saying if everything is God, then all of our interactions are interactions with God. That seems to me something like worship. Is murder worship? That's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, Doesn't seem like it to me. Let's pass that question over to Daniel. If everything is God... And and I mm-hmm. and, and you could say your interactions with, with all of your actions are some sort of an interaction with the divine... Yep. Is murder uh, is murder worship? I would say murder has been done as an act of worship. Yeah, isn't that strange? You just, you just take, for example, the uh, the Israelite story. The way that they got their promised land was to walk into a land and slaughter everybody there: that's, men, women, that's... children, babies. That's true. Even the even the uh, even the animals, and they, right? And they did that in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh. Uh. And it still it still happens today, doesn't it? I mean, people people murder other people in the name of religion. They do it in the name of their God. Mm. So yeah, <laughs> I think it's a very poor way of worship. <laughs> you know, it's it's weird because I I was in pre- preparation for today. I was reading some of those old Babylonian stories, and the creation mm. the creation story about well, about the creation of man. Um, yep. It talks about how w- when the gods got together to make you hu- to decide to make human beings, that they had to um, sacrifice one of the gods. They killed mm-hmm. one of the gods and mixed the blood of the god into the clay that was formed to make the first man. And so there was an act of murder of God that was involved to create human beings. Now that's symbolic of something. Is is sacrifice murder? I mean, this is like this is just uh, not necessarily pertaining to my original question about murder being worshipped. This is like a separate thing. Yeah. If if there is a sacrifice now, was the god willing or was it like they forced him? It's. I don't think it was clear, but I th- it, it, in the story, but I, I don't think that the god um, like fought resisted. It. Yeah. Is that murder? What about the uh, Abraham and uh, Isaac story? Yeah. I mean, God actually said, "I want you to kill your son," but he and didn't. He, loaded he didn't him make up it. On he a, didn't make him go through with it. On an altar. Well, I, I don't think that's the point that he, that did, that he mean, stopped it. <laughs> the fact, the fact that he uh, decreed that that was a way to worship him. How's so that not he, the point? If he didn't make him do it. Well, the mindset of Abraham. You think from the mindset of Abraham, Abraham didn't know that God was going to stop him doing it. So Abraham approached that as if he was going to go through with that. And that was an act of worship to his God. And he was, he, I don't know whether he was happy about it, but he was quite willing to go through with it. 
Sure, yeah, he was willing to go through with it, but God didn't make him do it. I mean, that seems important. So I'm, I'm just. I, I, th- I think it was in, well definitely important for Isaac. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just I'm just contemplating this idea of um, of like doing kindnesses, but also doing s- s- what we would call sins against other human beings as a, mm. as an act um, of of a oh boy I don't even know I get, well, you get what, jumbled what, with what, the words don't you? What was wasn't wasn't the sacrifice of Jesus? And we use the term sacrifice, don't we, with Jesus? Was that not? I mean, that involved murder. So, in so, order, so, in order for him to be sacrificed what, this, as so, a sacrifice for our sins, so to speak, yeah, he was murdered. Right now, what Kyle asked though is it, because it was voluntary, is it murder? So, if you if you lay down your life voluntarily, which is what Christ was supposed to have done, is it murder then? Because you're saying, "Take my life, I'll give it to you." You're not stealing my life. Is it murder then, or is it something else? I think the Apostle Peter viewed it as murder, didn't he? You know, at Pentecost when he was um, giving his speech to uh, those that were visiting for the festival, he was speaking about those that uh, that killed Jesus, and that was very much in a sense of you murdered him, you right. put him to death. Right, but I, I see that as the perspective of somebody that wasn't involved from Jesus' perspective. Do you think he Jesus believed perspe- he was no, murdered? From Jesus' perspective, I think he he did it willingly. Mm. And I think yeah. that's I think that's super important. Um, mm. If I go back to like uh, my Jordan Peterson uh, and Carl Jung stuff, um, they talk about the hero story. You know and how important it is um, for our development to to live out the hero story ourselves. And Jesus's life is an example of that. But it only works if the sacrifices you make are voluntary. You have to. You have to want to. If you're forced to, it, it. You're not a hero. If you're forced to, you're not a hero. You have to do it yourself. You have to want to. You know, fight the dragon. Sure. So, uh, boy, I don't know where I was going with that. Me neither. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just to go back to, you know. Everything being worship, I do, I do wonder, like, how are, I mean, to just uh, uh, take anything that you are, I guess, morally opposed to, and um, I, I don't know, I just, I have a hard time believing that anybody really thinks that, like, like molesting children is worship. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Sure, yeah, I mean, you know, like, mm. you got to take it to that place, something yeah. that's like, yeah. you know, I just don't. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't... Uh... Right, right. I get it. I get it. But this is what I want to say. You know how like um, there's there's these dictums like know thyself, right? And then Jesus says, do unto others. And I think that the moral question is if you... And I think this makes the contrast the way it needs to look. If I'm making a... If I'm acting or making a choice or making a decision and I, and I realize that whatever action I'm doing is is to God... That makes my moral choices like it's not just am I going to rape this person? It's am I going to rape God? See what I mean? It's like if mm. you if you put yourself in that perspective, um, in your, that frame of mind, it makes your moral judgments different. If you see everything as God, are you going to be more or less likely to do something like that? Um, it depends on the person, I think. <laughs> 
I think it does. I mean, if you talk to a person who is like hostile towards God, I mean, those people are out there uh, and yeah. you see every person as a manifestation of God. I don't think it's like, I mean, it's a, it's a leap for me because I'm not a fucking crazy person, mm. but uh, I don't think taking that scenario where everything and every person is a manifestation of God and you got people who are hostile towards God, I don't think it's crazy to think that that person might like use that as a justification for killing mm. people. I, I guess I, I'm thinking of like the Crusades right now. And I'm imagining all these Europeans going over there and, in the name of God, killing all the Muslims and taking back the Holy Land. Do you think that they could have done that or would have done that if they saw the Saracens as God? I'm going to go kill. I'm going to go kill my 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 brother, my fellow man, my mm. fellow God. My mm. you know. If, I think I think that's the problem that it, they don't. Once once you introduce duality into it, which is how they were they were viewing other people as separate to themselves. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Once you introduce non-duality and you view other people as yourself, which is effectively what I think Jesus was trying to promote, wasn't it? Yes. That we are all one. Yes. I think once you in, once you bring that into the equation, then yes, you sh you should technically treat other people better. If you really get it, you shouldn't be going on crusades. See, I, I think Jesus was very, uh, very mystical. And I think what's weird about mm -hmm. Christianity, and I know we were talking about Vendanda, and I'm sorry, but uh, what's weird to me about Christianity is how unimportant what Jesus taught is to us. It's not about what Jesus taught. It's about what it's about the sacrifice of his life for our, for our sins. That's what Christianity is about. For some reason, we have forgotten that he was a teacher. And what he yeah. taught was important. And when he said, love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek, there's, I think there's some mystical shit in there, man. Deeply mystical. Absolutely. Sure. I think Christianity, and I mean this respectfully, but I think Christianity as a religion has kind of lost what Jesus was all about. I think it's, I, I really do. I don't think Christianity as it's practiced around the world today is what Jesus was. Jesus was much more mystical. He was much more about the golden rule, the way you treat other people, being one. Um, it was, when I read the New Testament, it was really the Apostle Paul, I think, with his writings that made it more of a religion as such. Mm. That's what I see. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all on this call agree with that, 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 Christianity as it's practiced today is missing mm. something important. And I think that's what Kyle's looking for. I think that's what you're looking for. You're looking for whatever it is that you're missing, but you know is there. That's what you're searching for. That's just the way it seems to me. But I'm, I don't know what it is that you're searching for exactly. I'm, I'm not saying I know what I'm searching for. I don't. But would you, would, you, would you agree with that, that you're searching for that? Yeah, I mean, the Christianity that I was raised with is definitely lacking something and I wouldn't even necessarily well I would put it down to a mystical element uh, I wouldn't put it down to only that but that is definitely something that is missing from it um, yeah I, yes there is definitely something missing from Christianity a lot of it anyways I'm sure that there are pockets of Christians who are like onto something you know hmm. um, and it, from what I can tell, Orthodox Christianity seems to have some some of that going for it, especially like the mystical element. Yeah. 
Um, but so that you know what? That's a good question to ask Daniel because he because growing up in a Jehovah's Witness church, hmm. that that's a lot. Well, it's a lot all that dissimilar from the church that you and I grew up in, Kyle. It's not flashy, right? It's it's huh. it's supposed to be sh- like. Shunning, shunning the material, the materialism um, stuff, and uh, being more spiritual and, le- and less about the body. You know, it, it. So you downplay it, and so the churches are somber. You know, places they're not cathedrals with stained glass windows, and you know, they're not they're not striking you with awe. Um, where was it going with this? Rain, I don't, I don't even think I don't even think the form of Christianity, if you can even call it that that I grew up with as a Jehovah's Witness was particularly spiritual. It was very formalistic, secular in its approach. And it was very much about um, proving worthy of your salvation. Mm. It gave you a formula to work to do this, do that, go to church, preach to other people, study, pray, you know, don't do this, don't smoke, don't drink. You know, don't have immoral sex, etc. It's just rules and regulations. You know, and some some were good rules, some some were crazy rules. Mm. But you were always of this. There was always this confusion. You would read in the Bible that Jesus did it for us. It's a free gift. Yes, mm. we can rest in Christ and not. Mm. I see. You know, it's not not saying that we we then rest on our laurels and do nothing because a good Christian should be out there helping other people and fulfilling their duty and purpose and following what Jesus did. But once once you've got Jesus, you should be able to rest in Him and not be continually bothered about your own salvation. Mm. It was just like being on a hamster wheel all the time. That you know, salvation was always something in the future. Something mm. you could attain if mm. you were good enough, mm. you know, and it, it flew completely at odds with the idea of grace, mm. undeserved kindness, you know, that kind of thing. And this is this is what I like about the Advaita point of view is very similar to that idea that you can attain to a level of peace and salvation in this life, mm. and then once you've reached that. You, you don't need to worry about your own salvation moving forward. Yeah. You just have to fulfill your obligation towards other people. Yeah, that's... To love. Yeah. Well... And I think, that's, I think that's what Jesus was all about, you know? Yes. He did it for us. He did it for us. We don't have to. Yeah, I don't and know. We can focus on more important things than, than our own salvation. Yeah, I've, I've got mixed feelings about that idea. Um but, da- but Daniel, I, I was kind of getting to, have you ever been to a, like a Catholic church, like a big, fancy, beautiful cathedral? Uh, not not so much Catholic. We don't tend to have so many of those around in this area, <laughs> but Church of England. Anglicans, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So yep. so I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering, because this is, I feel like Kyle got, got inspired by mm. the reality of um, like ritual and... Um, and some of the pomp that goes along with, because um, because it, it started off us talking about like Viking mythology and um, you know some pa- pagan religions which are much more about ritual and symbolic action, and now the ex- exploration of or- the Orthodox Church, you get so much of the of the ritual, the the 
you know, the chanting and the um, incense and the robes and the, you know, the respect that Kyle, Kyle pointed out, how respectful the, the congregants are how and how there's is so many differences between that type of an experience and a, a church service that he and I grew up with. So hmm. do, you, do you see any value in that, Daniel? Do you think that do you think that there's some spiritual value in having ritual and beauty and awe involved in, in worship? I, not so much ritual, I wouldn't say, but certainly beauty. I think, uh, I think if you've got a real appreciation for God, you should... If, and, and you're going to worship God, you should bring your very best to that. So the idea, I mean, my worship always used to take place basically in a cardboard box. That's effectively what it was. It was a, it was a building with no, no features whatsoever, no right. stained glass windows, no, no ornamentation, nothing. It was just, it was just a prefabricated box that you went mm. and listened to. <laughs> indoctrination kind of thing when i walk into a church and i see the stained glass windows um the artwork i mean there's so much artwork isn't there and even things you know like the music all that creative aspect i i think that's brilliant and i think it does inspire you in terms of worship yeah i think i think awe Mm. is such an important experience i think i think that Ritual and um, the cathedral churches and things like that are designed to evoke awe. But when you feel awe, you you feel like you're in the presence of something that's that's infinitely greater than you. And that yeah. that is what that's what starts the quest. That's what starts the search. For so many people, experiencing awe is, is the jumping off place of your of a spiritual journey. You know, so yeah. I th- I think that's important. I I, th- I think bring you know bring to the table your creativity and the art and the that side of things, but I'm, I'm just not so big on the ritual side of things. I, d- I don't really s- see an awful lot of point for that. So you, I know pe- other people do, but I, you said that beauty matters to you in, in, in the beauty terms matters. of that thing. What determines beauty? Um, art, creativity. But what, what, I mean, so what is it is it subjective? I, I guess it is. Yeah, I guess it is. I mean, I mean for me, um beautiful architecture is, you know, church architecture is quite ornamental. Isn't it? You know, with carvings and uh, sure. gold and glass and So that kind of thing. Have you ever been to um have you ever been to that massive church Oh, it's still under con- construction. Uh, De Familia, I think it is called, in Barcelona. Um, I've seen, I saw a documentary on it. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. They've been building it forever. <laughs> Don't even they know. keep running out of money. 300 years they've been yeah. building it for. <laughs> yeah. Damn. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite the construction is, project. You know, if, that is, if, that is a, if that is an expression of worship towards their God, that is amazing. Amazing. I think that's incredible. It is, and symbolically so important that you start, mm. a, you start a project, you know you're not going to live to see, but you're doing it for the future, and you recognize Absolutely. something. That, there's a mystical thing about that, because what you're saying is, I'm doing this for me. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it, 
but you're, but you're, it's not you, it's, it's the future generations, but you identify with the future. You're like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this for my future. Sure. It's, and it's a, it's a sacrifice. Yeah. It's really beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Hmm. So what if somebody's subjective um, vision of beauty is something that you find absolutely morally repulsive? Wait, 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 wait. Um, can you give me an example of? Uh, let's just go with like a, like a dungeon specifically <laughs> dedicated to torture. Like, uh, you know, people find beauty in the art of torture. I don't get that. <laughs> well, it's that subject. That subjectivity. You don't have to get it. But my point is, yeah. what? If if beauty is important and beauty is subjective, um, yeah. I just I don't I don't know. I have a like I don't understand why beauty would be important if it's subjective. Oh, I can I can answer that. I think mm-hmm. I think I think all experiences are subjective. Everybody has individual experiences, and we don't have any way of knowing if they're like anybody else's. And that reaffirms the God within. Like when you have a unique experience. You're you're recognizing something that's uniquely you, and it's associated. Mm. With, it's associated with a thing that makes you alive. So the torture people's beauty is valid. I want to say yes, and I'll tell you why. Yeah. I'll tell okay. I'll tell you why. I, I, while you were talking about that, I was picturing like a battle scene. You know, like I was just sort of imagining I was on like this like a civil war battlefield, and there's smoke in the air, and there's bodies laying everywhere, and we're in the heat of the battle, and there's that moment where you take a deep breath. And you're overwhelmed, and suddenly time just stands still, and you see the scene in slow motion. You see the smoke slowly billowing across the trees. You see your brothers falling one by one beside you, and there's something about that that could be a painting, and I would be yeah. it would be beautiful. It might be beautiful. That that moment, yeah. just capturing that moment of chaos. There is something beautiful about that. There's all kinds of things you can find beautiful about that. The fact that you can find beauty even in that. To me, yeah. sounds like, like a. Oh boy, it sounds. That's like, interesting. You've you've just yeah, you've just touched touched a um, a feeling in me there. I I think war is a tragic thing. I really do. I think it's it, it evokes some really really strong feelings in me. But when I see battle scenes like you've just described. I mean, there's a there's an amazing film called Glory. I don't know if mm. you've seen that one, where at the end they basically all sacrifice themselves to try and take a fort. Yeah, yeah. There's something. I shouldn't think this. This is what I'm thinking. I I, I should think that's awful, but I see beauty in that. Yes. Now, why? That's a great question. That's that's kind of what I'm trying to get to. Is the mm. is the fact that you can see beauty in something so terrible? Is that a good thing? Is it like a life redeeming thing? You know, like like even in the most depraved mind of the torturer in the dungeon, he still has the hope because he recognizes beauty. He still has the hope of some sort of redemption because he because even though he's even though the person torturing is a, a dark soul shriveled up, you know, shriveled up to it to a prune, but it still recognizes beauty. So you have a seed of something in there that could become great. Right, it could be a recognition. Of, I guess I don't know. It could I don't be. Know. I, I'm having a hard time going out on that branch with you. Viktor Frankl 
Yes. The guy that uh, he was um, in the, in a concentration camp. Yes. In uh, in the Second World War, and he actually found beauty in that situation. Yes. That's a little different than the person torturing, but I th- I think that the I think what I'm tr- what I'm so, grasping for is something. There's something. a difference between Viktor Frankl. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, hold on. Hear me out on this. There's a difference between Viktor Frankl seeing his community banding together and surviving, and the Nazi torture. Like this is beautiful. What I'm doing. There, those are different things. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. But you're describing an you're describing an act as beautiful. Do you? Do you think an act is beautiful, or do you think an appearance is beautiful? Um. Well, I guess maybe they. I guess maybe they both are. Yeah, like what in, in you know the the scene from Glory when they're sacrificing themselves. That's an act, and mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Um. So let me, let me put it here this way: the guy in the torture chamber, mm-hmm. if he if he was doing all that stuff and didn't see beauty in it, is the, is he worse or better morally? If he did it, if he was doing it and didn't see beauty in it. Yeah. He wasn't enjoying it for, for some sort of aesthetic reason. He was just... I'm not sure that it matters. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that's an extreme example. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm fine with extreme examples, but I'm just saying that, like... Yeah, I don't know. I, I just don't... I just don't think... I I'm think, not sure I that I think I think I matters. know what it is that's... Bring it... The, the uh, common denominator with all of this... What makes it beautiful is the feeling of connection mm. with mm. who you are, the humanity side of it. I think I think sometimes the worst situations can bring you close to, closer to the fact that you are essentially God. Mm. I, th- I think that's it. You know, I mean, just just coming back to my exa- terrible example of Viktor Frankl. Awful things were being done to him and his his comrades. Yep. But in that situation, he was able to understand himself better. That's where he found the beauty. Not not in the action towards him. That was a, it was a grotesque thing. Right. But he was able to find something in that experience that made him closer to God. There's a line from the Tao Te Ching that says... Uh, I'm going to butcher this, but it says something like, "Beauty doesn't exist without ugliness," you know, and exactly. good, good doesn't exist without evil, right? So mm-hmm. you have to recognize the evil in order to understand the good, in order to recognize the good. So in that yeah. in that sense, evil is fundamentally important. It, we can't we can't do without it, actually. Absolutely, which is what my my one of my problems used to be with Jehovah's Witnesses used to teach that if if you were worthy enough, you know, and you've done everything you should do as a good Jehovah's Witness, you would get to live forever on Earth in an absolute utopian paradise. Every day would be fantastic. There'd never be any illness, anything bad. You'd have plenty of food. You'd have no challenges from that point of view. You would just be living life in absolute bliss. And for some reason, to me, that sounded like my version of hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I used to think it's almost like it it can be too good. 
<laughs> What's the Dostoevsky line? The Dostoevsky line about that? About the uh, I forget. Oh, we used to we used to bring it up from time to time. He he said something like, um, if uh, if what does he say? He says if your world if your world was structured so so that uh, oh, yeah. everything was bliss and all you had to do was eat cake and busy yourself with the propagation of a species that human beings would fuck all of that up just to have something interesting happen. Something like that. But he said it more eloquently than me. I, lo- I love that Chris is like, man, I can't remember that line. And then he spouts it off Rattles like it basically off. verbatim. <laughs> yeah. Daniel, I'm, yeah. I, we got way off tropical. Tra- Traffic. Tra- all we got, oh boy. Uh, topic on Vedanta. Is, was there anything... Um, Anything else we wanted to touch on in terms of Vedanta or non-dualism? Yeah, so we've talked about what Advaita Vedanta is. We've talked about the two types of Brahman, the one with and without qualities. We've looked at that, haven't we? Yes. Um, Let me just have a quick look at this. Ah, this. I I must share this with you. (laughs) Okay. Advaita Vedanta um, are familiar with the expression, thou art that. It's a Sanskrit phrase, thou art that. Mm. And there was a guy called Joseph Campbell that wrote a, uh, it was actually a posthumous book. And he asked a question. It was actually uh, Schopenhauer's question that goes like this. How is it possible that suffering that is neither my own nor of my concern should immediately affect me as though it were my own mm. and with such force that it moves me to action mm. now i think that's great because you great. hear of you hear of selfless people don't you that sort of throw themselves under buses and trains and all sorts of things you know put their lives in danger just to sell, save somebody else and sometimes even the most hard-hearted and normally self-interested persons will self-sacrifice when they see another human in mm. in need and schopenhauer when when posing that question how is it possible that i should feel like this he basically just responded with three words thou art that in other words we are one and the same with everything that is now this is what um this is what he wrote he said um <clears throat> I'll just read this from the book. It says, this presupposes, as the German philosopher wrote, our identification with someone not ourself, a penetration, if you will, of the illusory battle between, a barrier rather, between self and not self, so that the other person is no longer perceived as a stranger, but as a person, to quote Schopenhauer, in whom I suffer in spite mm. of the fact that his skin does not enfold my nerves. Jesus Christ, Daniel, the hair standing up on my arms That's right now. That's a great quote, isn't it? Man, man. Um, so I, I, that makes what you said earlier make way more sense to me. Um, mm. So, I, man, I don't know what it is about that. Like, when, I know the example you were bringing up, uh, like a life and death situation, uh, and people will be selfless because they have to act. It's like they don't have the time to think. They just, they just act but i think they just act but mm. I, you know what i think of is I, I think of um 
I don't know, you probably have these commercials in the UK, but we've got these commercials, these Sarah McLaughlin commercials where they're, uh, um, they're showing you the pets uh, at the Humane Society with one eye and the, you know, the cat with, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be killed if you don't adopt them. And they play the, yep. they play the really sad music and people just call in and donate, you know, money or, yep. or the Wounded Warrior Project or something where they show you, they show you the soldiers with, with their missing legs and stuff. And, but people will see that commercial in and it, in whom i suffer in whom i in suffer in spite of the fact that their skin does not enfold my nerves exactly I exactly it reaches in those commercials reach into your soul and pull on your heartstrings even though they're strangers that you don't know and you will never know what and that to me is the greatest evidence that non-duality is a thing i love that man that is so cool <laughs> that, that, that's great, man. I'm going to use that. I'm putting that one. I'm going to put that one in my in my in my back pocket, Daniel. I like that. Who said that? That was Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer, yeah. yeah and it was um, it was in a book. I've not got the title of the book, but it was in that book by uh, Joseph Campbell mm. called "Thou Art That." All right, Daniel. I hate to t- I hate to tell you this, but um, that up- that upgrade of uh, Zoom I thought I did didn't take. Is telling us we have seven minutes left, <laughs> so I think I think we'll probably just let this seven minutes be the end of the podcast today. Um, okay, buddy. And if it's okay with you, I've got rapid fire. I've got a couple of things on um, the the the. Well, I don't know what you want to call it, but did the did the Jews did, did the Jews borrow or steal these uh, important religious items from previous cultures? I have a couple of those I can I can share with you. Yeah. All right. So, <clears throat> so just to uh, completely change course and confuse everybody, we're um, going back to uh, the previous conversations we had about this. I wanted to mention for the audience that the place in the world where uh, the Jews, the Jewish people came from, um, it basically stretches from Babylon in the east um, all the way to Egypt in the west, and their history is mixed in with the Levant and Turkey and all, and you know uh, parts of the the, the north of uh, the Arabian Peninsula. There's so many different people and languages and cultures there. Um, it's no surprise that we see things like this in the Bible that don't originate in the Bible. And the question I have is: Does it undermine the Bible? Does it undermine the stories to you guys in any way? So let me let me read you this, and then you tell me the answer to that question. Uh, before I do, um, there's three major cultures: the the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians. That you know that this the cradle of civilization goes back to 5000 uh, BC in uh, Sumer, and that was right you know the Tigris and Euphrates River right there between Iraq and Iran. Um, the person that um, we call Noah uh, in the Bible. Um, in in the ancient Babylonian tradition, he was called um, Ut, Utnapishtim. So that's a that's a name that I pronounced correctly. Don't ask me to say it again because I probably won't pronounce it correctly the second time. Um, so Gilgamesh comes from that tradition from Sumer, and then the Akkadian s- civilization came after, and they were a Semitic speaking people. So related, right? Cousins of the Jews, you might say, and. Um, then the Babylonians uh, a little bit later, and Hammurabi, who, who I brought up at the beginning of the, of the episode, he's a Babylonian, Hammurabi. And he wrote um, a law for Babylon, and it, it it's, exists in a museum in France, I'm pretty sure in the Louvre. Uh, it's called the Stele of Hammurabi, and it's this giant black stone. It's very cool. It's got a carving of a god and the king at the top, and then it's got all the laws written on the bottom of this stone. 
And if you read the laws, you, you see that there's some interesting similarities between the Jewish law. So there's also a character named Sargon, and he was an Akkadian. Um, he, was, he existed right around the 2300 BC, and he's got some interesting similarities with Moses. So this is what I want to tell you about. I'm going to start with the Sargon story. So there's a cuneiform tablet that was found, a Babylonian tablet, called the Legend of Sargon. Excuse me, Akkadian tablet. The Legend of Sargon. Remember, these people were Semitic people, like the Jews. And it goes like this. I am Sargon, mighty king, king of Akkad. My mother was high priestess. My father I did not know. My mother, the high priestess, conceived me in secret. She bore me. She placed me in a basket of bundled reeds and sealed the opening with tar. She cast me onto a river from which I could not climb out, but the river bore me up and it carried me to Aki, a water drawer. Aki, the water drawer, lifted me out while dipping his bucket. Aki, the water drawer, raised me himself as an adopted son. What does that sound like to you, uh, Daniel? That sounds to me like the story of Moses. You bet it? your ass it does. So, Which means, I believe, doesn't the word Moses mean uh, drawn from the water? I believe it does. I believe it does. And so you can see in Exodus 2, and there went, and there went a, uh, a man of the house of Levi who took a wife, a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could not hide him any longer, she took him... She took for him an ark of, of bulrushes and dabbed it with slime and pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river uh, bank. And the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. She, she had it opened and saw the child. She had compassion on him, and the child grew, and she brought him up un unto the Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she called his name Moses. Mm -hmm. Amazing. So Sargon... Who existed? Yeah. Uh, who existed thousand or fifteen hundred years before the historical Moses has the same birth story. And I'm going to rapid fire this because we got two minutes. Um, there's a story called um, Atrahasis. Atrahasis. And there's different versions, but let me, let me give you this. This is the creation of man. Create primeval man that he may bear the yoke. Then one god should be slaughtered. Nintu shall mix clay with his flesh and his blood. Then a god and a man will be mixed together in clay. Let us hear the drum beat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. I'm going to compare that to Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. It goes on. And the Atrahasis version. 600 years passed and the country became too wide. The people too numerous. The noise of mankind became too much. I have become restless at their noise. Let Namtar put an end to their noise straight away. Genesis 6. And it came to pass yes. when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. <laughs> it just keeps going, you guys. A Atrahasis. Inky made his voice heard. Dismantle the house. Build a boat. Reject possessions and save living things. I shall make rain fall on you here. The flood was seven nights worth. The flood roared like a bull. The darkness was total. There was no sun. Compare that to Genesis 6. And these are all 1,000 or 2,000 years before the yes. Bible accounts. You got it. Mm. 
Yeah, make thee an ark of gopher wood, and every living thing of all the flesh, two of each sort, shalt thou bring to the ark, to keep them alive with thee. And for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So you even have this seven days business repeated. And then Hammurabi, I'm going to leave you just with this one last thing with Hammurabi. Hammurabi, the stele, says, If man should, should blind the eye of another man, they shall blind his eye. Leviticus 24, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a mm. tooth. <laughs> That's it, you wow. guys. D- Daniel, a bit of plagiarism uh, going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, D- uh, Daniel, hang in there for a second. If we lose you, um, if we lose you, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, uh, I don't know if I'll send you another invite, but I'm going to play the outro music. But hang in there with me if you don't mind. Okay, bud. Yep. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode